0: I'm Zoe Rosenberg.
1: And I'm Asad Sarkat, and you're listening to The Appeal, the Curbed Podcast.
0: If you didn't know that the housing market in the Bay Area is the most expensive in the country, I'd like to welcome you to the 21st century. (laughs) Welcome.
1: (laughs) Welcome. Yeah, so today we're going to be talking to Kim Mai Cutler. She's a journalist and housing policy advocate, and she's someone who really is examining the intersection of race and class and technology in housing in the bay area
0: so stick around
1: so let's talk about your work you you examine the intersection of tech and race and housing in the bay area which is a lot to unpack (laughs) so how did that how did this become kind of the focus or a focus of your professional life
2: um I So I'm a native. Um, I've grown up here. I've been here most of my life. I have lived abroad. I have lived in New York, Um, but my family's been in in the Bay Area since the 1950s or so. So, and they've also been involved in the technology industry since the 1950s. So, um, you know, I just have this kind of I don't know personal historical memory from my own family. You know, where, you know, my, you know, my grandfather would talk about what it was like to work in a lab, and I got a sense of like what the values of the industry were through him Mm. at that time. Um, and then what the values of the industry were like through my mom and my dad who both worked in tech. Um, and so I just, I, I don't know, I f- even though I wasn't alive then, I do feel I have some type of historical memory that I want to preserve because most people here are not from here. And they're also, you know, they're, they're relatively new, like to tech in general, they might, you know, like an old timer would be someone who showed up in the nineties, I guess. Right. right. Um, and so, you know, people don't have this kind of overarching understanding of like how, you know, the state evolved, how the region evolved, how the industry evolved, how they intersect and kind of intertwine with each other. And so I just wanted to kind of preserve some of that and then also kind of give people perspective, um, you know, on where we've been so we can understand, you know, where we want to go mm-hmm. as, as a community and as a state. And and I think I think you can't, you know, you can't, cover California without understanding, you know, the complexities of, you know, race and class and all of that. Like, you know, we like to think that we're a state that's fairly progressive and cosmopolitan, but we have, we have a history that is also very difficult in many ways. And I, I I think it's, you know, we like to pretend that it isn't as difficult here, but it really, I mean, it really is.
1: Yeah, for sure. At your, uh, you, you have a presentation at BIL Oakland and I think that was in July. Yeah. You talked in your presentation about Joseph Eichler, who I know is a revered developer, especially by folks who are into, into design, um, as many of our listeners and, and readers on curb.com are. And, um, so there was a, there was an exchange in that presentation that I found really telling. I don't know if you can anticipate what I'm going to talk about. Are but, you talking
2: about Steve Jobs or are you talking about?
1: No, which so, part? So a man, you were talking about how Eichler homes have become luxury items, and yep. a man yelled out, "I'm a millionaire because of the same phenomenon. This idea that yep. you know no longer are Eichler tract homes affordable for folks who are you know middle class. I mean, it's like a real luxury thing. And then you had this moment of exquisitely deployed shade, where you were just like, "Oh, great, congratulations, that's amazing." And I don't <laughs> think he, I don't think he understood kind of his role in this exchange, like. You were trying to highlight uh, a phenomenon that has been really detrimental for folks who are middle class and are trying to find uh, to buy homes in that area. Um, can we talk about that exchange and also sure. maybe how, what you were thinking while that was playing out?
2: Yeah. So actually, I mean, I can talk about a specific example. So I do I do have a friend um, who whose mother in law recently passed away earlier this year and she owned an Eichler in um, Palo Alto that she bought in 1964
1: for about $24,000. Wow. Um, yeah, really?
2: Yeah. <laughs> and and she was a public school teacher who moved to California from Arizona in, in the 1960s when um, Jerry Brown's father, Pat Brown, was um, governor of California. Um, and at that time, You know, we had this kind of one-off phenomenon, which is, you know, this combination of the car as a piece of technology and and the highway and the road infrastructure as a piece of public works combined together um, enabled us to kind of really, really inexpensively convert agricultural and orchard land to inexpensive tract housing. Mm. Um, And, 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 you know, simultaneous to that, in post-war American housing policy, we made, you know, housing, we also made housing an asset, an investable asset. Um, And we created all these subsidies and laws and and tax protections that really protected housing as an investable asset. And and the problem is, you know, over two or three generations, if you have housing um, appreciating faster than median wages, that is really not a sustainable situation for the working class or the middle class. So, you know, by the time that she died, you know, her house was eventually sold for $2.3 million. Um, and if you think about that, you know, for, from her perspective, okay, it's great that a public school teacher got to buy a house for $24,000 and then get like a 10,000% return on it. on it. But what that implies for um, present and future public school teachers um, is is not a good situation at all. Mm. And it's, you know, it's not one that you can really fix easily because, you know, because we've tied up so much wealth and housing that we can't just like reverse that. You know what I mean? Because that mm-hmm. would be obviously a devastating to a whole different group of people. Um, so we're in this, we're in this situation where, you know, the, we had a generation of Californians that did incredibly well by their home values. Um, and, you know, ensconced in law, all of these limitations in supply, all these like tax benefits. And and that is really coming at the expense of, you know, both future generations affordability, and then also um, our ability to finance like just really basic public services and infrastructure.
0: So something that your work touches on and something that you were just touching on there and something that you talked about a bit at uh, BIL Oakland is this sort of dynamic between affordability and between median income. Let's talk about how housing costs in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley are blowing out of proportion compared to what people are making. Right. Um, Yeah. So, I mean,
2: there is an ad that I think I included in that presentation of an Eichler home from 1950. Um, that you advertise the home at uh, $9,400. And then if you were a veteran from World War II, you could get it for $300 down. I and um, I are sitting in
0: the studio just shaking, just shaking our, our heads. heads. Yeah. yeah, I know. Um, but, but the median income
2: at that time in the region was uh, $6,600. And I, I got that stat from, I don't know if you've read, um, what is that? There's a great, like, kind of coffee table Eichler book on, on modernism in mm-hmm. the American. I forget, you, you, do you know which one I'm talking I about? Do, yeah. I don't, I, yeah, so it's from that. Um, Yeah, so you know that's like 1.5 times median income in the f- the 1950s, and I mean I don't know. Can you imagine like <laughs> no if you could buy yeah. something? <laughs> no if you could buy a house for 1.5, you know, of course interest rates were higher, but but you know that that ratio has gotten wider and wider over the last couple generations. So mm-hmm. in in the late 70s, in the San Francisco and San Jose metropolitan area, you know your median home price is about three to four times median income. And then today it's about nine to 10. Mm. Wow. So yeah, there's a pretty marked difference. And I I think some of that, so some of that reflects, you know, the nature and the change in industry and compensation itself. Like more people, obviously, since the 1990s have been compensating themselves um, with equity and stock. Mm -hmm. Um, And that wouldn't be reflected really, you know, that wouldn't be reflected in, I guess, median incomes in the same way, because people might get, um, they might cash out or they might like have a windfall or something like that. And they might use that as their down payment, or they might, you know, use that to augment their home buying capabilities. Right. Um, and, and then on the other side, they're just, you know, you, the berry just really hasn't added that much housing relative to its population growth or, or you know, population growth and job demand over the last 40 mm-hmm. years. And so when you're in a situation, like there's really just not that much for sale, like you can go on Zillow and you can like, look at how many houses are for sale um, you know, in Palo Alto and you might get 60 or 70 listings at a time. If you look in San Francisco, San Francisco only sells 5,600 to 6,000 homes a year. Uh Um, and that's including existing homes. I'm not even talking about new construction. This is like how many units are sold overall. And so it doesn't really take that, like, it doesn't really take that much of a job boom or, you know, maybe like one IPO that is large scale to kind of really mess things up again (laughs) so you know that that part does kind of matter Mm -hmm. as well because if we haven't you know if you're building we've averaged like 1900 homes built a year for the last 20 years Mm -hmm. in in san francisco um and so if you're only selling i don't know six thousand, if you can like increase that supply a little bit like that can actually you know have an impact and i think you know what you're seeing this year where home prices are not increasing by 14% a year, you know, that Mm -hmm. is the impact of that additional supply along with a little bit of cooling in the funding markets.
1: Yeah, that anticipates a question I I had for you about just this, this system as it operates. I mean, is it possible to make the kind and kinds really of substantive changes that we would need to increase access to housing, you know, but within our existing political and economic frameworks, is that too tall of an order or are there things that can actually be done?
2: Um, I mean, I, I personally think that in California you'd need, you know, you need comprehensive tax reform to have, um, a really like, like serious conversation about access and affordability at multiple different levels. Cause mm-hmm. the current situation we have now is, um, We don't, okay, well, A, we don't really build very much, but also we have very limited resources to make housing subsidies to people who clearly can't, you know, like for them, the market's really just never going to work based on land costs in San Francisco and San Mateo County or Santa Clara County. Um, So what, what ends up happening in our, in the Californian system is we always try to extract those subsidies out of new construction. So you're kind of in this situation where we've been underproducing for 40 years and we're trying to like extract a token amount of low income housing support Mm -hmm. from the small amount of housing that we're building. Uh, And we can't like think more broadly about it because we've so constrained ourselves over the last 40 years in terms of all kinds of um, voter, you know, initiated kind of tax restrictions.
1: So as you all know, listeners out there, we have been trying some new things on the show. And one of the, the new things we've been trying is a segment called Ask Curbed. Um, and we recently had a question um, from someone about how to make the most use of their uh, second bedroom in their New York City apartment, which we agreed is a great problem to have. We nailed that one. <laughs> we nailed it. Exactly. It. <laughs> um, and today we're going to be talking to um, our city's director at Curbed, Sally Kushar. Say hi to the folks, Sally san francisco yeah sally Hello. is based in san francisco and she has joined us all the way from the city by the bay um, to that's talk about true, yes. a divisive topic right <laughs> a divisive subject um no we're not going to be talking about donald trump and hillary clinton so
3: even more divisive <laughs> yeah. donald trump about.
4: definitely
3: has one of these though oh god <laughs> that's top, a, yeah. yeah that's a great tie-in let's uh <laughs> what are you talking big, about the big sally? <laughs>
4: I'm talking about testosterone rooms, aka man cave.
3: <laughs> you say testosterone rooms? Yes. Cool. Uh, I like, I, that kind of makes me like them more now. Oh god! Oh, <laughs> it's a fun. No. It's a fun little wordplay. All right. So
1: why?
4: Th- it wasn't original. I I gacked it. I totally stole it from a, a headline. But yes, it's a pretty pretty apt way of describing what a man cave is.
3: So Sally, are we to uh, assume that you are not a fan of man caves?
4: I'm not a fan of man caves. In fact, I'll go as far as to say I think they're stupid. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I think that's fair.
1: Why do you think they're stupid? Yeah. Tell us more.
4: Well, in my research to figure to better understand my own resentment towards them. I mean, there's just like the blatant sexism, right? But I wanted to kind of dig deeper into the why. Mm. And I stumbled upon a GQ article, and the headline is, Abandon Your Testosterooms. It's by Adam Sachs. It was published um, in late 2011. And there was one paragraph in particular, or one segment of a paragraph in particular, that really resonated with me. And it says, The whole goal of living with someone, of defining and designing a home together, should be figuring out a way to make your lives converge with something approaching harmony. As a kid, it was cool to build forts and disappear in secret hiding places because you were living with your parents. Bachelor pads are where you live when you're a bachelor, not an escape you dig your way towards with a spoon every night when your wife sleeps. <laughs> if, if If you're, if you're digging the whole house for a tiny corner of freedom, you need a therapist or a lawyer, not a decorator.
1: First of all, that is some exquisite shade. <laughs> let me just, is, let me just say the that. The whole
4: article is worth a read. If you resonated with that, you should check out that article.
1: Yeah. So that is something that I think really hits at the heart of this, which is that man caves and the 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 kind of corresponding spaces for women, which are unfortunately called she sheds, which I just loathe with every fiber in, of my yeah, being. Yeah, they're in the
3: backyard. They're little sheds with like a chair in them. You should Google yeah, she sheds. Says, they're really weird. Nothing says
4: womanhood like a shed.
3: <laughs> <laughs> a space of your own, Sally. Yeah. Come on. When I when I was with a wallpaper. young girl
4: growing up, all I could think of, I can't wait to have my own shed. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so just to just to sort of maybe play a little devil's advocate here, uh, what do you think of like studies? like if uh if you or your partner has your own office in the house, is that not kind I of like a man cave I just not decorated would, like a child?
4: Um, I don't think that is a man cave. In fact, I think that is incredibly important. And if you're afforded the the luxury of having that kind of space, that is a great use of space, especially if you don't apply stereotypical gender norms to it.
3: True. I also can't believe I just used the word study instead of office first, as if everyone is living in the board game clue.
4: Because you wanted to paint a picture of mahogany walls and old leather books, that's
3: why. Because that's fine, because those places are awesome.
1: (laughs) So, I mean... I think that...
3: Oh, go ahead.
4: The term term man cave to me is, is offensive, because it says, I need to get away from the women to enjoy myself. And, um, I don't think women are capable of understanding what I enjoy as a man. And I want, um, I want to refer to my space as a cave because I'm so primitive. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) And it's just,
4: it's, and it's, it's, and and, and I guess if you wanted to flip it, like, where does, where does the lady go? Does, you know, if we're going to stick to these traditional stereotypes, hopefully somewhere with windows. (laughs) <laughs> Does that mean that like the same pool of thought, I, it wouldn't be too, too, I think weird to say that would um, apply that the woman's place is the kitchen.
1: Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. that's
4: not the truth. Right. Um, so I, I don't like it.
1: Yeah. I think it's, I think it's problematic for those reasons, but then from
3: an aesthetic point of view like they never look good and they never almost like, seem oh, to yeah. intentionally look terrible it's like here's right. a place that's not decorated here that has no like sense of style because I'm a man and I don't do that right
1: right so it's like <laughs> oh, upholding really? gender gender stereotypes and kind of like uh, assumptions about where people fall in terms of like their interests based on their gender identity but doing it in a way that is
3: like so gauche and just terrible you heard it here first Turn your whole house into the man cave so that everyone can enjoy it. I think, <laughs> yeah, as well. I think to be the conclusion we came to. Sally, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for shedding light yeah, on this disgusting thank you, Sally. issue. <laughs> we really appreciate you coming on.
0: Shifting just slightly, there's this idea that... Um, Airbnb helps make housing affordable for homeowners and renters by helping to provide supplementary income. But at the same time, uh, the company is coming under fire because they're being pegged as driving housing prices up. Um, so you've written quite a bit about Airbnb. Uh, how do you think that's affecting housing in the Bay Area? Um, I mean, I think I've said this before, like if
2: you increase the amount of rent that you can earn from a given physical space, like whatever that is, whether that's Airbnb or whether that's, you know, you know, like job boom or not building enough or whatever, like you're also increasing the value of the asset. And so I would assume that over time, part of it would just get capitalized into the asset value. So, you know, if you bought in early before the value of Airbnb rents was priced into whatever, you know, earning capacity the unit had, like, I suppose that would help you with affordability. But if you are not you have if you don't have the right to land and you haven't bought anything yet and Airbnb earning capacity is getting priced into assets, then that would be that would not help your affordability.
0: So it's a to make to break it down into layman's terms um you're saying that it'll help it'll help some people but not all depending on when they bought in the market right depending on when they got in okay
2: which is yeah a very classic californian thing <laughs> if you got in early if you got in early you're you're gold like <laughs> <laughs> right yeah there was a meeting that chris Lehane held once and um you know it was like the day after they um defeated proposition F in last november's elections what and what was brought that in these the Proposition F was this um, voter initiative that was meant to severely kind of restrict Airbnb by allowing kind of neighbors to kind of sue other neighbors if they thought they were violating that the, lo- the city's ordinance. Yikes. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. Airbnb won and they spent eight million dollars to defeat this proposition. And then Chris Lehane, who is their guy who they you know kind of hired in, who had experience from the Clinton administration, he had this little presser and he brought in all these people and he brought in a bunch of hosts and they like fit that kind of stereotypical description of like you know just homeowners just paying their you know bills or whatever and you know like you know there was an older there was an older man there and there's an older woman there and they both said Airbnb was really really important for them mm-hmm. And I, you know, I asked the, one of the women, I was like, well, you know, why don't you have a, a roommate? And she literally said back to me, she was like, this is my asset and this is how I want to monetize it. So of course, you know, I looked her up and I looked up her property records and I was like, oh my God, you own like a $2 million condo that you bought for $300,000. Wow. Mm-hmm. So of course you want to monetize it that way. Um, so I mean, I'm sure it helps her with her affordability, but for the person who wants to get in later, it's not such a good situation. Or, and for the tenants, it's not such a good situation, you know, in case your your landlord thinks that they can earn more, you know, by having an unjust kind of eviction and they want to earn more through Airbnb.
0: To understand your your answer a little bit better, when you say people who bought at the right time in San Francisco are are doing okay uh, with Airbnb, it makes sense for them. Uh, when, when would that be? Well, I mean, we started having a huge upswing. So like, you know, there was
2: 2008, 2009, there was the... Uh, the recession. Um, in our local market, um, Bay Area housing, and I'm not just talking just about San Francisco, I think it, it I, my understanding is it fell for 30% from peak to trough um, after 2008, 2009. And then we started coming way up again in about 2012. And that, of course, was when Facebook IPO'd. So, mm-hmm. you know, like you have, f- I, I, I think that would be the more salient kind of like, you know, the, the Facebook and Twitter IPOs would be more important to emphasize in that, you know, 2012 and afterwards period, um, then, then say Airbnb, Airbnb would probably, you know, might affect some small amount of rental inventory. Like, I I don't think the capitalization effect is like of Airbnb is probably as significant as the overall issue of, of, of shortage and demand.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay.
2: Um, and then of course, lack of, you know, subsidies on the kind of low income side. Yeah.
1: Hand in hand with with housing issues, um, you've also talked about how important transit is for socioeconomic yeah. mobility and just being able to just kind of create a, create a, a city in which people are actually able to get to where they need to be to, you know, inc- and yeah. increase their their earnings. Um, is there a transit and access solution to San Francisco's particular or the Bay Area's particular issues?
2: So. In in the Bay Area, I mean, we I wanna say we have at least two dozen transit agencies. I don't remember mm-hmm. the exact number. So there there's a difference between our political and government structure and New York City's government structure in that um in you know, I think it was 1898, you guys. Decided to annex the other four boroughs and create a singular government mm-hmm. to kind of roll them all, and to have like 800 miles of subway and this and that. Um, in the Bay Area, we have 101 governments for seven million people. Um, as a result of that, we have a fragmented transit system, Jeez. Um, and that makes it difficult because you know we never made the same types of investments that New York City did at the turn of the century. Like if you look at Muni, the reason say Muni exists in San Francisco is Mm -hmm. they were actually privately run, um, you know, streetcar lines that were then rendered financially unstable or even insolvent by the emergence of the car. And then the city then decided to municipalize that system. Mm -hmm. And then BART is a later mid 20th century system that was actually supposed to go around the entire Bay, um, but San Mateo County and San, San uh, sorry, Marin County decided to drop out in the fifties and left us with a partial system or an incomplete system. So we have BART, we have Muni, we have um, we have Caltrain, and Caltrain is a repurposed Southern Pacific line uh, from the nineteenth century. So there are all of these fragmented
1: uh, elements that aren't really fitting together in the way that they would need to provide the blanket no. kind of coverage that folks right need access to. Right, and
2: right. yeah, and there's no. Um, there's like, like, I believe your system, I mean, MTA's market share is of, of New York city public transit is probably, I don't know. It's, you know, it's probably in the seventies, eighties or nineties percent. We don't have a system that has above 45% market share in the Bay area. Wow. So we have a deeply fragmented system that just doesn't work coherently together. Um, and you know, we're trying to get this. You know, there's a $3.5 billion BART bond called Measure RR um, that is supposed to cover some of the $9.6 billion in kind of maintenance capital improvements needs that we have over the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) is that something that folks Um, will
1: be voting on in November?
2: Yeah. And so in California, again, because of our um, initiative system and then in particular uh, Prop 13 and then Prop 218, um, any revenue raising measures like taxes and bonds, they need to have a two thirds uh, majority vote.
3: Uh-huh. So
2: a minority can block this particular maintenance bond that we need. Um, so I, my understanding from talking to people is that it's kind of hanging around the 67 percent area. And if it doesn't pass, I'm really not sure what we're going to do to mm fund um you know you know they're they're like rail, they're like like pieces of rail that i I think there's we have a bart director i think rebecca saltzman i want to say like she was pulling out rails from the bart line and they were literally dated from the Mm. 60s and the train control i mean the, the train control systems from like the 70s it's like this is a really old you know it was a state of the art when we had it it's not anymore um you know there's there's issues that different people have with you know its choices of investments over the last 10 years over like expansion versus maintenance. But like at the end of the day, like this is a really important system. And if we don't make investments and if we don't try to maintain it, you know, it will break down and there will be pretty severe transit and economic consequences it's for yeah. the region.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for for calling in and for joining us. today. Yes, I appreciate thank it. you.
0: We really, really appreciate it. Cool. Thank you.
1: That was the eighth episode of this second season of The Curved Appeal, and we hope you enjoyed listening.
0: If you would like to keep up with us, please subscribe on iTunes or in the podcast section of the Spotify app. And if you want to keep up with Kim Mai, check her out on Twitter at Kim Mai Cutler.